Hey everyone, we're going to read from the Bible now. We're reading from Revelation chapter 2. And if you've got one of the black Bibles up the back, it'll be on page 1090. We're going to start at verse 8. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are the but are of a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for ten days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent, Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Well, if you have your Bibles open, you want to keep them open, that would be great. Uh, hi everyone, my name's Tim, I'm one of the staff here, and uh, before we begin, I'm just going to pray for us, so let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence, and may your word be our rule, may your spirit be our teacher, and may your greater glory be our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ our Lord, Amen. Uh, well, in uh, 2013, uh, Justin Bieber was doing a European tour uh, when he had a couple of days off, so he decided he'd do a bit of touring in the Netherlands, and he went to visit the Anne Frank Museum. Uh, now, uh, Anne, uh, if you don't know her, was a teenager who, uh, during World War II, uh, hid with her family behind a, a false wall. Uh, they were hiding from the Nazis because she was a Jewish girl, and she wrote a diary about her life. Uh, they, she unfortunately died in 1944, but they found her diary and they turned that house into a museum to speak about this. Uh, Bieber had a day off, so he decided this museum would be a great place to visit. He had a walk through and then he decided he'd write something in the little uh, visitor's book and this is what he said. Truly inspiring to be able to come here. Anne was a great girl. Hopefully she would have been a believer. Within hours, there was an absolute outcry. Is this the most insensitive comment in the 21st century? Now, the, one of the spokeswomen for the museum said, maybe we should give him a little bit of slack. Uh, 
He's only 19, maybe he hadn't thought this through. And another journalist said, if we're looking for the best in him, then maybe we consider that he's just hoping that Anne Frank could have had a normal life like his fans. Uh, But no matter how you read it, it really is a pretty uh, insensitive thing. Justin Bieber was somebody uh, who didn't see that context is king. He might be a really famous person. He's made over $200 million. But uh, no matter how famous you are, uh, in a bigger circumstance, in a bigger context, uh, you understand that there are certain things that are right and there are certain things that are just not appropriate. Uh, Justin Bieber's great problem was that he failed to read the room, to understand that context is king. And today as we continue our series uh, looking at the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, we're going to see that Smyrna and Pergamum have very different circumstances going in their lives, very different issues, but their great challenge is the same, and that is that uh, can they read the room? Can they understand the context that they have as they have the God of the whole universe speaking to them uh, through John in this vision and reminding them that no matter how out of control their life might feel, no no matter how weird things are, uh, God is in control of everything and they need to put their trust in him. But before we jump in, it's helpful for us to remember that we don't want to have our own Bieber moment when it comes to reading Revelation. Often when we're reading the Bible, the temptation is to jump straight to, what does this say about me? What does this tell me about what I need to do in my life? And not consider the context and the circumstances of the people themselves. We don't want to be like Bieber, caught up in ourself and not thinking about the bigger picture. So today we're going to think about three things for each of these groups. We're going to think about the city, the struggle that they have, and the solution for their problem. So we're going to start with Smyrna, which you can see the arrow pointing to there. Smyrna was a coastal city on the Aegean Sea. It's where the current city of Izmir is in Turkey. And verse 1 reads, Write to the angel of the church of Smyrna, Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. And it's a very quick first verse, and you might read that and just kind of go past it, but there really, there's something happening there on three different levels. Firstly, and most importantly, we realize that this is Jesus who is speaking, the first and the last, the one who is dead and who came to life. We also know that he's speaking into the future for the Smyrnans. This is their hope, that they are people who put their trust in Jesus, who died and rose again and who offers them new life. But we also see that he's actually speaking into the past of Smyrna. Smyrna was an ancient city that had a strategic position, being coastal and near a river. But we've gone one slide too far, I think. But their great problem is that they were very arrogant as a city. In the 600s BC, they were so arrogant that they didn't get on with the local power called the Lydians. And so they were absolutely wiped out. They went from being a great ancient city to being a village for 300 years until Alexander the Great explodes across the continent and he re-establishes Smyrna as a city. So they were special because they understood as a people, as a culture, what it meant to die and then to be raised to new life again. They became one of the few planned cities in antiquity. But they also became a real centre of Roman worship. They had a temple to Roma, uh, uh, the God. And Smyrna was a place that really understood uh, struggle because of this. The church understood real struggle. 
It was a place known for wine and for culture and beauty and opportunity. And later in history, it had also become the home of a guy called Polycarp, who was one of the early bishops. Uh, you can read about him in the book Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, and uh, powerfully, we can read about how they arrested him. He used to be a disciple of John's, John who had this vision. And in his 80s, they dragged him into a stadium in Smyrna and they insisted that he deny his faith. And this is what Polycarp said. He said, Eighty and six years I have served him and he's never once wronged me. How shall I then blaspheme my king who has saved me? But then they continued to harass him and they threatened that they were going to actually burn him alive. And so he responded again. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is soon extinguished. But the fire of the future judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly you are ignorant of. But why do you delay? Do whatever you please. And they did. They burned him alive. Two of the great challenges for Polycarp are also two of the great challenges that we see for the Smyrna church. In a city that worships Rome, Christians who only worship a god are seen as a threat. Combined with that, the local synagogue, who have been waiting for a Messiah patiently, rather than support the Smyrna church, choose to persecute the very people who are declaring the good news of the Messiah. This is what verse 9 tells us. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not. They are a synagogue of Satan. That sounds like a really rough thing to say, doesn't it? But as Paul picks up in the book of Romans, if they turn away from God, if this synagogue, a place that is supposed to worship God, if they turn away from that God, then in essence they are actually serving someone else. If we went to Romans 2.28, we could read this. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something that is visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. The church in Smyrna is being persecuted by people who have all of the external trappings of being the people of God. They carry the cultural heritage of being part of the nation of Israel. They have the religious heritage of meeting in one of the local synagogues. And they have the habitual heritage, no doubt, of carrying out acts of worship that God's people have undertaken for centuries. But with all of these external trappings, spiritually they're dead. In fact, the voice from heaven calls them a synagogue of Satan. I think this statement taps into a real warning for us as a modern church as well. For the, Smy the Smyrnans and for us, the temptation can be to think that the greatest opposition to the church comes from people who stand in a direct opposition to us. When we picture the people in our minds that are most dangerous to the Christian church, we can think about those great atheists who are in vocal opposition to us, who want to debate us at all points. But in reality, actually, they may be a lot closer. They're happy to talk about Christian things. They're happy to have meaningful discussions. They're happy to interact. In reality, the greatest danger is to be close, maybe even to be part of a Christian institution and yet stand in opposition to the words of life and the gospel itself. For the church in Smyrna, uh, the local synagogue should have been a place where they felt uh, warm and comforted. These are people who are part of God's history. And when they hear the good news about the Messiah, they will embrace us and we can share this good news together. 
And yet they stand against and persecute these people who are are declaring this good news. For us, it may be people who are members of the church as an organisation. And yet they hold on to the gospel as something that is just about being quiet and comfortable and I don't want to bother other people and we just want to get on with our lives. And they don't want to declare the good news of the gospel that might be awkward and might be uncomfortable. But it is words of life for people who hear it and respond and put their trust in Jesus. Or it may be, as we'll see in the church in Pergamum, people who say the best way for us as a church to go ahead is to honour the one who made us and offers us new life. But also maybe we should accommodate the culture around us as much as we can. If we can kind of blend everything together, then maybe we can get on with others better. The greatest danger is not to be in stark opposition to the church. The real danger is to be comfortable and maybe confident in being in the shadow of the church and never actually stepping out with the gospel and never actually living out the gospel in our lives. And so the solution for the church in Smyrna is that they have to understand that context is king. They need to read the room and see the real context of who they are and what's happening. We see this in verse 10. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. In essence, he says, if you are a Christian, then the suffering that you have, even if it is great, is just a blip next to the reality, the good news of eternity for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, One of the great things, uh, the internet has given us many great things, but one of the greatest things it has offered us is the great philosophical question, uh, would you rather fight 100 duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck? Uh, If you're really uh, bored at home tonight, you can do what I did midweek, and that is go on a deep dive. And there are people who have written some very long uh, theories on this. Uh, To be a horse-sized duck, does it mean that the duck is the height of a horse or the weight of a horse? Because ducks' bones couldn't handle the weight of a horse and you'd just be able to beat them up and they couldn't move. Uh, If I'm taking on a 100 horses, do I get to take them on one at a time or is there somebody who is organising the battle? Uh, There are 100,000 different directions you could take this great philosophical question. Uh, But it might be missing the most important and the simplest thing. And that is that question, is it better to have one big problem that you have to deal with or 100 little problems? Thank you for the person who just answered 100 little problems. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, The encouragement to the church in Smyrna is that they have one big problem that has been dealt with and in which they have confidence. The horse-sized duck in the room for them is the broken relationship that they have with God the creator of heaven and earth, and that as Jesus deals with this on the cross, uh, they know that they are secure in him because they already have a victory. And that means that every other problem is just like a a duck-sized horse. It's just a little problem. And so you can see how this throws everything on its head. You might have missed this as we're going through from verse 9 and 10. It flips everything on its head. So you've been afflicted with persecution, and that means that you're in poverty. But if you are right with God, then that means that you have a promise of an inheritance that is inestimable, an eternal value. And the persecutors can't touch that. 
Verse 9b, you go to these people who are supposed to be brothers and sisters, but instead they are slandering you and they won't have anything to do with you. But that doesn't matter because if you put your trust in Jesus, then you are adopted into God's family. And even if your earthly family doesn't love you in the way that you should, they should, you are sons and daughters of the living God. Verse 10, you're about to go through some trials for a period of time. But we're reminded that even if it leads to death, Uh, Even death itself is just a duck-sized horse because if we put our faith in Jesus, then we have the crown of life. Verse 11, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. And even here as he speaks of conquering, we see how God uh, turns things on its head. Because real conquering isn't about being a power. It's not about having authority or enforcing your will on others. But real conquering for the Smyrna church is by being obedient and submitting themselves to Jesus, knowing that Christ is the one who has conquered for us in his death and resurrection. And this means they see everything else in a new light. I think Paul captures this beautifully in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says, For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For those in Smyrna and for those of us who feel the pressure and maybe the persecution of those around us, it is the eternal weight of glory that holds us steady and drives us forward. So what about Pergamum? If Smyrna is the uh, Sydney of ancient Asia, the glissy kind of uh, coastal capital, then Pergamum is the the Canberra of the ancient world. That's a good thing, I hope. Uh, A Roman imperial power had its regional seat of government there. It had a geographical starting point that uh, it was a state-sponsored worship of the emperor there, so this is the place where everything happens. Uh, These days, if you go and visit Turkey, you might go and see the uh, ruins of the Library of Ephesus. Uh, Well, Pergamum had a library that was even bigger than the Ephesian Library, so much so that uh, the word that we have for parchment actually comes from the word Pergamum. As a place that prided itself as a a place of uh, human learning and a place where you could come and worship the emperors, this is most likely why uh, in uh, the passage it's called uh, the place where Satan's throne is. Because here people come to worship a man, merely a man, but they worship him as God. At first we have an affirmation of the Pergamum church. Because we're told a member of their church, a guy called Antipas, stood up to persecution even to the point of being executed. But if Antipas is the great representation of what the Smyrna church is like, they're holding up against persecution, the warning for the people in Pergamum is not about persecution but about seduction. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who talk Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold onto the teachings of the Nicolaitans. uh, So repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. If we need to make sense of this, we have to go all the way back to the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. Uh, Balaam was a a prophet, 
and a, a king of the Moabites, a guy called Balak, had gone to Balaam and said, you need to go out and you need to prophesy against Israel. You need to curse them. Uh, but Balak asks again and again, and Balaam keeps on saying, no, I'm not going to do that. And then finally, Balak con- convinces him to do it. So Balaam uh, starts riding on his donkey to a place where he's going to do this curse. But you have this a weird moment. Uh, we have it here in the picture where an, an angel appears and stops the donkey, and Balaam gets angry and he's beating the donkey, and then the donkey t- talks to him and tells him not to do it. Uh, and so he doesn't go and do this curse. And then finally, Balak has another go and he builds seven great altars and he says to Balaam, go and sacrifice at these altars and curse Israel. But every time he does this, Balaam gets a word for the Lord and he only praises Israel. Uh, you could read this story and think, oh, that's a funny one for uh, uh, Jesus to talk about here in Revelation. Uh, there was great persecution and it seems like every time nothing happened, Israel is secure. But then if you read in the book of Numbers and you go five chapters later, you hear something much, much worse. All of these frontal attacks, Israel's enemies have been unsuccessful. But in Numbers 31, we get the wrinkle. Balaam entices the women, uh, entices the Israelites to sleep with Moabite women. And those women in in turn invite them to come and uh, celebrate sacrifices to the Moabite god Baal. And here we see where persecution is unsuccessful. Seduction is the thing that has victory. If you run into straight opposition, maybe you hold up, but when you are seduced into things is the danger. This, says Jesus in John's vision, is the warning to Pergamum. They appear to be actively taking place in sacrificial celebrations to idols and in sexual immorality. They've also got caught up in the, the, uh, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't actually know who the Nicolaitans were. Uh, last week, Chris tried to throw me under the bus by saying, I'm going to explain the Nicolaitans for you this week. Uh, but we don't know who they are. The best idea we have is there was a guy called uh, Nicholas of Antioch. And his deal was that he said, let, it, let us take a Christian teaching and let us connect it with the other teaching of other gods. And if we sort of mix it all together, if we stick it in a blender and we blend it all up, then maybe it'll be something smoother that we can drink. Uh, But this kind of mix doesn't work. And instead, uh, it choked the Nicolaitans and it was in danger of choking the people of Pergamum. Uh, In uh, early 2020, uh, the Welsh butcher Tom Samways uh, was inspired uh, one afternoon. Uh, He went into a supermarket and he saw this thing called plant-based meat. And he thought, "That's that's a fascinating idea. And so he came up with an idea of his own. If I want to reach out to people who are otherwise vegetarians... If they can have plant-based meat, maybe I could have meat-based plants. And so we went home and with the right kind of level of uh, mixing and mincing meat and shaping it and putting a bit of tarragon for colour, he created bunches of carrots. (laughs) Now, uh, you and I know that Sam was really just having a gentle dig at vegetarians. But even in the joke, we have a a helpful point here. If a, a vegetarian bases their identity on uh, a particular thing, a principle, um, I'm against violence to animals or maybe I'm c- concerned about the environment, then it doesn't matter if you get something that looks like a carrot and is shaped like a carrot, it's coloured like a carrot, and maybe even got it to taste a bit like a carrot. If you're betraying your fundamental principles, then none of the window dressing really matters. And this is the issue for the church at Pergamum. They'd held up under direct persecution to the point of death for at least one person. But it appears that they're seduced by something that is called worship. 
They're seduced by something that they say it's an act of love and an act of love is always good because love wins. But really it was a denial of the God who gave them every good thing. It looked like a carrot, it smelled like a carrot, uh, but they were betraying their first principles when they did it. And so Christ's rebuke is an interesting one. Do you see it in verse 16? So repent, he says, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Of course, Jesus is referring here when he talks about the sword of his mouth uh, is the word of God. If they don't change their ways, then he will convict them with the power of God's word. Uh, Hebrews 4.12 reminds us of this. Uh, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword penetrating as far as separation of the soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Jesus says, if you don't turn from these things, that you can tell yourself it looks right, but if you're betraying the God who loved you and made you and cares for you, then I will come with my word and my word will convict you of the sin that you are doing. And friends, we too face a time where we need to stand up against a world that wants to tell us that real worship is to follow our God, but also to embrace the ideology or the idol of current uh, popular culture. And the way to resist this, seduction, resist this seduction is the same for us as it is for the Pergamene church, and that is to spend time in God's word to be reminded that my real identity isn't defined by uh, the current cultural moment and people say that it's about my uh, sexuality or my politics or my anything else, but that authentic faith and that authentic identity comes in knowing the God who made me, the God who loves us and the God who gives us purpose and meaning and direction and hope and a future. That authentic flourishing is flourishing the way that God has made us in his world and not by embracing whatever is popular at this moment. Now, this is the final word in, uh, God's, in Jesus' words to Pergamum. To lean into God's kingdom is to put our trust and faith in him and to have the promise of something that is far more valuable. Now, Jesus' words are a little confusing when he gets to the end. I let anyone who hears listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. The hidden manna, I think, is a little bit more straightforward. Jesus reminds this church as they face persecution that the God who cared for the people of Israel is the same God who will continue to feed them as they put their trust and faith in him. When it comes to the white stone, uh, one commentator I read said he had at least seven different ideas of what this might mean. I'm going to tell you the one that I think is most reasonable, and that is that square stones were often used as an admission token for people in the first century if you were going to a party, a festival or a feast. And Jesus reminds his followers as members of God's family uh, that even though they're being invited to idol feasts and idol worship, that being part of God's kingdom, God's family, is that we've been invited to the great wedding feast, that through the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, we have been redeemed. We are part of God's family and we have been invited by name. We have been given a new name. That is, we're not defined by who we are, who we were, what we've done, but who we've become through God who has redeemed us through his son Jesus. Jesus. 
Uh, friends, we're uh, 15,000 kilometres away from Smyrna and Pergamum. Uh, we live 2,000 years later than these two churches in Revelation. Uh, but we have very similar challenges and God is calling us to the same wedding feast. Friends, God knows you by name. Jesus Christ invites us into our, his family and he encourages us that we need to hold on. We need to read the times. We need to understand that context is king. We may feel persecuted. We may feel that Christianity is not in a cultural moment. But we know that what the world says is urgent will fade away. But God's promises are unchanging and eternal. Let's thank him for that now in prayer. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you that you love us, that you call us into relationship with you, and that even when we feel like we can't hold on, that we know the hands of Jesus hold us steady. So we pray, Lord, that you give us patience in persecution, that you would give us a love for your word, and that as we spend time in your word, that you would convict us of the truth and you would encourage us as we seek to share others this good news as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.